just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. It's 9 o'clock Pacific. It must be Money Management time. I'm Mike Mail with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And I'm here to talk with you this morning for the next hour about the markets, the economy, and hopefully give you some insights into what's going on so you can make some good informed decisions. Now this week, nothing really major occurred this week other than uh, the Fed uh, board member uh, comments on Tuesday morning about the need to raise interest rates more. The last several days have been simply a function of uh, digesting those words. We're in a trading range market, so, you know, and as you hear me in the morning, I say, you know, the market's squishy, it's sideways. Well, that's what's going on. There's not really much motivation to move the traders one way or the other, and I think it's going to stay that way for a while. You know, the S&P's been under pressure uh, the last couple of sessions, but uh, if you're a numbers person, uh, there's support at 44.55, 44.50 on the S&P. It's still holding. Matter of fact, the S&P is only 6% off its all-time highs. So uh, let's do the data dump here, see how we ended the week. Uh, the Dow was up on Friday at 34,712, gaining 137 points. S&P at 4488, NASDAQ at 13,711, uh, Russell 2000 at 1994, gold at 1941 an ounce, silver at 2470 an ounce, Crude down a bunch from the last couple of weeks. It's at 98.26 a barrel. The 10-year up a bunch in the last couple of weeks. It's at 2.71% on Friday. And soft white wheat was quoted at 10.87 a bushel. You know, and, and this is not going to be a news item, but uh, you know, some stocks have done well over this last 12 months. Uh, some haven't. But commodities are continuing to lead. If you look at the S&P having made new multi-year lows relative to commodities. The, the way the market's been acting, the playbook is oriented defensively, it would seem, with commodities-linked sectors outperforming, uh, while tech underperforms under concern of higher interest rates. And uh, as a, my buddy Sam Stovall has this, so take heart. Sam says that stocks are typically higher in April. It's historically the best month of the year for the S&P. 70% of the time since World War II in April, the markets have been up. That's a pretty good number. And this next week, I think, which may help move things along uh, in terms of the market, we're going to start the earnings season uh, from the most recent quarter. We closed, uh, what, yeah, Monday. Um, J.P. Morgan uh, will be reporting, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, all uh, in the middle part of the week, so... Those will definitely have uh, some degree of effect on the marketplace. And according to Bank of America strategist Savita Subramanian, Subramanian, sorry Savita, anyway, investors holding more cash appears usually like a negative for stocks, but it's actually not. This is according to Savita. He says, what we found is that consensus Wall Street strategists are a very reliable contrarian indicator. Now, I think he's on to something here. He says when they're telling you to dial down your exposure to stocks and increase your allocation to cash, that's usually net bullish. 
what we found is is that when the bulk of evidence is telling you to be more cautious and defensive, probably all the information that caused that to happen is already priced into the market, and the market is more likely to surprise in the opposite direction, unquote. If you think Apple's a big deal, you're probably right, because in the S&P 500, it contributes 7.1% in what they call the weight. So if Apple's having a good day or a bad day, you can be pretty sure that both the Dow and the S&P are going to be reflecting those movements. And that's the largest weighting I've seen uh, since 1980, so a significant number. Futures market uh, says that uh, we're looking for another half percent increase in the uh, interest rate in May and in June and another one in July, which is more aggressive than the Fed has been signaling, but that is the guesses of the traders. And the 10-year Treasury uh, was yielding 2.70 yesterday in early trading. That's close to its highest level in three years and is adding to the uh, pain and agony for fixed income investors. They've had the worst start to a year in multiple decades. Jeff Kleintop is a chief global investment strategist at Chuck Schwab. He said there's no signs of an earnings recession. Earnings growth estimates by Wall Street analysts are higher than they were at the start of the year, except for emerging markets because of the Russian companies involved there. Now I want to get over to uh, some economic considerations because there's this talk, you know, uh, and we'll talk about the inversion and what that might mean and all that, but all this talk about recession and everything. Jeepers, Carmen, these people. Uh, here's, here's some facts about what's going on in the economy that you can throw up in these guys. But, of course, they'll say, yeah, but. That's their favorite response. Yeah, but. Anyway, last Friday, the government said our economy created 431,000 new jobs uh, it, which, again, reinforces that the economy is still well along, doing okay. Two years ago, believe it or not, the jobless claims were at 6 million. Okay? 6 million. And unemployment claims last week, 166,000. That's the lowest, uh, close to its lowest since 1968. Um, <laughs> and that's with the labor force having doubled in that period of time. So there's basically no unemployed people unless they want to be. Okay, uh, The service sector continued to expand rapidly in March, and that's good because that contributes about 70% of our overall economy. Um, and uh, it, it has reversed the string of declines that was going on since uh, last November, so that's also good news. 17 of the 18 industries reported growth in the two most forward-looking indices, new orders and business activity. Both had gains for the month, so once again, another good point. Now, the trade deficit. A lot of times this gets pushed in the news as a bad thing. Uh, no, because here's why. Uh, if you look at the total volume of trade, which is imports plus exports, that's how much businesses and consumers are interacting across our border. It's up... 21.8% versus a year ago at record highs. And it basically signals that we've got a strong recovery from the bug. And the trade deficit's likely going to stay high in the months ahead because we've recovered faster than most other countries. You know, we're still running low on inventories for many goods due to the increased consumer spending. So appetite for imports, which are higher than our exports, that's why we have a deficit, 
will, <coughs> excuse me, remain much stronger than normal as folks try to restock their shelves, etc. And uh, this is also not a new news item, but for the record, U.S. home prices hit a record high for the 36th month in a row. The average price of a new home sold in the U.S. has hit a record $511,000. That's up 25% over the last year alone. Now, it's coming up at the same time that, as we know, borrowing costs are rising. With the 30-year uh, rate, uh, according to, who is this, Rocket Mortgage, currently a fixed rate at 4.42%. That's the highest since 2019. Uh, and, you know, we've seen a 1.37% in the 30-year in the last, what, three months? That's the biggest jump since May of 94. It's just tracking interest rates. Again, the 10-year Treasury is the bogey. You want to see which way mortgage rates are going? Follow which way the 10-year Treasury is going. Well, the mortgage rate is basically the same as it was in January of 2019. The challenge is, is that the average house is now 42% more expensive. So that's a 42% jump in the monthly payment. Now, here's things that are kind of <laughs> strange but true. Mortgage rates at, <coughs> excuse me, 4.42 uh, uh, are way higher than they were just a few short months ago. And the other thing is, is that average mortgage rates were never so low as they are today from 1970 all the way through 2008. It's all about perspective, isn't it? Now, what about this oil reserve stuff? A lot of politicians beating their chests about, oh, yeah, we're going to make it a lot cheaper for folks to buy oil. Well, let's uh, kind of look behind the curtain a little bit, shall we? Because it's a fact, at least as far as I'm concerned, politicians don't understand market economics. But they are well aware of how frustrated voters are with high gas prices. I mean, that's fairly straightforward. You know, we've got... There's 31 member nations in the International Energy Agency, and that's us, Europe, Australia, Japan, Mexico, and some others. <clears throat> excuse me. They're going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, totally releasing 120 million barrels of crude. That's the largest release in the 47-year history of this operation. So we, the U.S., is going to release 1 million barrels per day over the next six months. The other members together will release another 60 million barrels over that span. So that averages about 333,000 barrels a day. Sounds like a lot? Well, if you had to put it in your backyard, yeah, it would be. But uh, when you think of it from another perspective, the U.S. Energy Information Administration says the entire world is consuming 100.6 million barrels of oil per day on average. So the release that they're talking about would satisfy about a third of that, which is not a lot. And here's the other thing. It won't all go to gasoline. The manufacturing world uh, uses petroleum, crude, for uh, feedstocks, for synthetic rubber and plastics and a whole lot more building blocks of basic consumer goods. Uh, and in addition, the need to restock these reserves, which will happen likely next year, adds to the forward market tightness because where the supply outlook remains unchanged, that likely will tilt prices to the upside. So there you go. I mean, it's just not, it's, it's a lot of window dressing with not much to it. And the same thing would be true if they say, oh, yeah, we're going to eliminate the uh, sales tax on gasoline. They're not going to do it forever. Just do it for a little while. Say, oh, I don't know, maybe till November. I'm just guessing, of course. But... Uh, 
Let's talk about this inversion stuff. You know, last week, there was a lot of hooting and hollering and chest-thumping <clears throat> about this uh, two- and ten-year inversion. The idea is, shorthand, that if the ten-year Treasury note is yielding, paying less than what the two-year Treasury uh, bill is paying, you have what's called an a, a yield curve inversion, and that, by definition, according to a bunch of folks, means that uh, you're going to have a recession. Well, again, last week, uh, the 10-year had a lower yield than did the two-year. Today, well, as the end of the week, the uh, two-year is 2.51, the 10-year at 2.7. That's not inverting. So last week was a recession. This week, what? You know, yeah, we'll have a recession someday. It just happens. But don't get talked into one. You know, just don't let your attitude say, oh, yeah, we're going to have a recession. And then you start taking actions or not taking actions that, uh, in effect, helps to create one. Anu Gagar, he's a global investment strategist at our broker-dealer, the uh, Commonwealth Financial Network. He said that the 10- and 2-year curve has inverted 28 times since 1990. So this isn't exactly new news, though, once again, our media buddies wouldn't let that get by. 22 of those 28 times, a recession has followed. Now, he, he said that the yield curve flattening, in other words, the interest rate that you get paid for very short term is not much different than what you get paid for very long term. So in, uh, that flattening and the inversion are features of an economy that's shifting gears from mid to late cycle. And he goes on, in the late cycle, markets begin to fret that tighter monetary policy could take the wind out of the economy and a downturn might be approaching. He added, finally, uh, going back to 1990, the lag between an inversion and the start of a recession has averaged about 22 months. So... If you now don't want to do heavy math, that's about two years. So, Nathan Harris, he's head of global economics at uh, B of A Securities. He said, don't fear a yield curve inversion. It's not the standalone indicator of recessions as it once was. Sure, historically, the yield curve invasion has been the quote-unquote most reliable single indicator of a uh, U.S. recession. However, he adds, today the signal is quote, heavily distorted by the Fed's massive balance sheet and extremely low bond yields overseas, unquote. Dr. Ed Yardini of Yardini Research, he sees the multi-year bond buying spree by the Fed as also messing with the inversion data. He says, and I'm quoting, our models show the flatness of the curve could be more a consequence of the Fed's relentless buying of bonds and a consequent growth of the Fed's balance sheet rather than because of a looming growth shock. And Invesco, Mr. Levitt, uh, had this to say. He said, investors should be mindful to not overreact when the yield curve first inverts. An inverted yield curve has not been a very good timing tool for stock investors. Indeed, by his reckoning, uh, let's see, he said, investors who sold when the yield curve first inverted in December of 1988 missed a subsequent 34% gain in the S&P. He goes on to say, those who sold when it happened again in May of 98 
missed out on a 39% additional upside. In fact, the median return of the S&P index from the date in each cycle when the yield curve inverts to the market peak, 19%. So the proverbial bottom line here, dumping your stock or stock funds because the yield curve inverted has proven to be a very poor investing strategy for a very long time. But wait, let's say you have 100% faith in this yield curve thing. And it, even if it does have a predictive value when it comes to a downturn, that doesn't help you when it comes to timing the market. Authors uh, Eugene Fama and Ken French uh, recently published a research paper called, and I know everybody's read this, Inverted Yield Curve and Expected Stock Returns. It's really good with pictures and underlines. Oh, you got to have it. Fam, they took their data set back to 1975 across 11 major stock and bond markets to determine if an inverted yield curve could predict the stock market underperforming short-term treasuries. That they're a proxy for cash. Their conclusion was, and I'm quoting, we find no evidence that inverted yield curves predict stocks will underperform treasuries for forecast periods of one, two, three, and five years. They compared three broad market indexes using the U.S. stock market, the world stock market, and the world ex-U.S. stock market. And uh, in all 24 instances, that was the case. Even if the yield curve does predict a recession, yet again, you can't predict when a recession will happen, if and when the market will begin to fall, the magnitude of the recession and or the correction, and what's the Fed going to do in the meantime? If that isn't a, a, a wild card, I don't know what is. You see, the market nearly, nearly merely images, try it again, nearly is the mirror image of short-term interest rates. Lower rates, good for stocks. Higher rates, not so good. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. So when the yield curve gets flat, it's almost like the financial sector choking off the economy when the yield curve is steep. Being a bank is easy. You borrow short, lend long, pocket the difference, and thank you very much. But I think the financial press is obsessed with the significance of the slope of the yield curve because, again, some have told them that, you know, this is a bad thing. I'm not suggesting I have no tea leaf reading uh, skills. I'm not going to say we're not going to have a recession. I say we will have one. But I'm not going to tell you when because I have no clue, and neither does anybody else. And recessions are simply just recalibrating. It isn't a reason to be doing reverse half gainers off uh, some high spot. It is just not worth it. It's, you got to stay with the program, okay? Now, uh, we're getting close to the bottom of the hour, but uh, we're going to be talking about a couple words about inflation. There really isn't much to talk about, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, the reality is food is a bigger problem than gasoline because for folks in the lowest income group, food uh, expenditures uh, represents 11% of their overall spending. It's 7% for high income earners, and it's only 2 to 3% of spending across the board. That's according to Wolf Research. So, yeah, it, you see it every day. You know, it's like the stock market. If you see the prices every day, perhaps they make a bigger impression on you than if you only saw them periodically which is not a bad idea. You know, <laughs> I mean, even gold is working. If you've listened to me for a while, you know that I'm not a big fan of gold uh, simply because it pays no dividends or interest, and the only way you make money is to be able to be light enough on your feet to be able to trade that stuff. 
and most folks don't have that capability. So, you know, that's when you know that it, uh, inflation is being a thing because how long have the gold bugs been waiting for this? Jeepers. I mean, <laughs> it's the first time it's got off the uh, deadline for uh, many years. In any case, you know, inflation is going to eventually subside from this uh, spike, whatever that causes uh, you, you want to focus on. But I believe it's still going to be remain elevated longer than the bond market expects. You know, there's many factors that drive inflation globally. Of course, the pandemic, the global supply chain issues, production costs, and the invasion, among other things. You know, and as things stand, the global economy is not likely to make a quick U-turn in the coming months. I mean, it's just there's too many drags on it right now that can be thrown off uh, as time goes on and as history shows that's what happens in any case you know a little bit of inflation is desirable because it means you're growing there's some growth going on and but rapidly rising inflation oh bad idea because it erodes your purchasing power or and or forces folks who are retired and or living on a fixed income of any sort to have to dip deeper into their nest egg now unfortunately as we've seen, inflation is a political lightning rod. As a result, there's a whole lot of misconception running around around it. And the basic answer is that there's too much money creation. Too much money chasing too few goods. That's it in a nutshell. But what is it? You know, the <laughs> I was taught early on that inflation simply means everything costs more every year. Pretty straightforward. Seems to work. But, you know, it's why a gallon of milk costs more today than it did last month and way more than it did 50 years ago. But interestingly, if you were to track prices back however long you want to go back and adjust them for inflation, you'd find that you're rel paying relatively the same amount for the same kinds of goods or services that you did back then. It just seems so much lower because the uh, uh, prices, excuse me, the inflation factor has been taken out. So... You know, unprecedented stimulus during the pandemic, it helped keep consumer demand high, but the supply chain bottlenecks mean supply can't keep up. And in continued labor shortages, which are currently driving wages higher, you get a perfect storm of rising inflation. You know, it, uh, Robert Schiller, who I don't agree with on many things, but that's neither here nor there. I'm still willing to take advantage of his online database of stock market numbers that go all the way back to the 19th century. Now, there's a guy who doesn't get out much. Anyway, resorted by the level of inflation, the tipping point's about 7.3%. Below that, stocks have gained an average of 7.5% annually adjusted for inflation. However, when inflation is above 7.3%, stocks have lost more than 11% annually adjusted for inflation, and we're not too far above 7.3% right now. Now, this too also assumes, at least in my mind, that you're having an extended period at these uh, particular levels. Like in the 60s, excuse me, 70s and 80s, we had years of high inflation, not months. And so that really tilts the issue somewhat. Now, I'm not suggesting that it won't stay this high. I don't think it will. But once again, that and whatever you want to pay is 
probably get you a soda somewhere. Um, but, you know, stocks, high quality stocks of the world are long-term inflation protection. They're historically superb inflation fighter due to the company's pricing power. Here's, each, here's a, 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 a benefit of a rising rates. Because the net profit margin of the S&P, just under 13%, that's nearly as high as it's ever been. And that's according to the folks at FactSet. Now, do not assume or presume that I'm suggesting to you that stocks are an efficient inflation edge in the short run. No, no. They are not. No financial asset is. But Dr. Jeremy Siegel, uh, he of the Stocks for the Long Run um, book, and if you're an investor, I strongly suggest you pick that guy up. In any case, in the long run, he says, stocks are extremely good hedges against inflation, while bonds are not, unquote. So what could happen to your portfolio? Well, some asset classes are more sensitive to inflation than others. And as we're discussing, fixed income is particularly vulnerable to rising prices, especially rising interest prices. And can anything good come from inflation? Well, I guess the beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Some asset classes have thrived in periods of rising inflation, and commodities may be particularly well-suited because they can pass price increases onto the consumers. Stocks have tended to perform well, too, as I've said, especially the small cap and U.S. value and international. Um, so there you go with inflation. Uh, again, it's not a reason to be uh, bailing out of the market or doing anything untoward, certainly not at this level. Now, in terms of looking forward, um, Richard Bernstein, he used to be the chief strategist for Merrill Lynch. He's on his own now. He says that we think the main theme will be a move away from long-duration assets. Now, what are long-duration assets? Those are the, the ones that are dependent upon lower long-term interest rates. So, more specifically, that would include the growth, tech, innovation, and disruption themes, cryptos, uh, cryptocurrencies, excuse me, residential real estate, and longer-term fixed income. Long-duration assets are heavily overrepresented in most investors' portfolio. You know, the big growth names. I mean, if you don't own stocks individually, you can still look through the top 10 holdings of your funds, and I think you'd recognize the names that we're referring to here. Uh, this is despite the evidence that's building now that cha changes in the economy are increasing the risk of higher long-term interest rates. Or, if you want to think of it another way, I don't know if it's a risk, but the fact that interest rates are likely to go up longer term. And before anyone gets all carried away, you know, we're not talking about it going from, again, the 10 years at 2.7 today. We're not talking about going to 5 or 8. I mean, the Fed is even talking a quarter and one half of 1% increments. And it's still causing all this concern. So keep that in mind when you read some of these headlines. Um, you know, if inflation does increase, well, it might be appropriate to expect future periods uh, to look like the 60s and 70s because fixed income investing provided lower returns and higher risk. In effect, uh, if you include the 50s, uh, fixed income investors lost money, lost money 
just didn't have lower yields, but lost money during uh, 10 of those 30 years. So bonds don't just go up, contrary to what a lot of folks think as a result of what happened since 1980. So allocations appear to be above historical averages on commodities, but they're not very overweight. Now this, according to J.P. Morgan Chase strategist, led by a gentleman named, and this is not going to be good, Nicholas Panagiritskalu. Sorry, Nicholas. That suggests the uh, uh, scope for gains in raw materials, say the J.P. Morgan folks. Commodities could surge by as much as 40%, taking them far into record territory, should investors boost their overall allocation to raw materials at a time of rising inflation. They go on to say, in the current juncture, where the need for inflation hedges, which means something that is not correlated to stocks or bonds, not won't trade in the same direction as stocks or bonds, um, it is more elevated, it's conceivable to see longer-term commodity allocations eventually rising above the 1% total assets globally, surprising the previous highs. Now, all else being equal, that would imply another 30 to 40% upside in commodities from here. Now, commodities have rallied across the board this year. Gains in the main categories of energy, metals, and crops. Those are the three main categories of commodities, by the way. And we're talking about some uh, comments from J.P. Morgan Chase about commodities. And uh, they added here, uh, commodities have rallied across the board this year, gains in the main categories, and again, there are three of commodities, energy, metals, and crops. Those are things that, you know, basically stuff you can buy and sell readily. That's what makes it a commodity. So among the gainers, Brent crude, that's the global oil benchmark, the North Sea oil, is up more than 30% and hit the highest level since 2008 last month, though it down significantly from there. Defensive names like the consumer staples and healthcare companies uh, are, you know, people are looking for those kinds of companies that have stable earnings and pay dividends. Nothing wrong with that. Now, defensive stocks are in a, considered as, you know, somebody, well, what's a defensive stock? Well, in addition to strong cash flows, they have stable operations with the ability to weather weakening economic conditions, unquote. They also pay dividends, which of course helps cushion the stock price during a market decline. Now, a few types of defensive stocks include those that distribute or produce consumer staples. So what, now we're not talking about the little metal things that hold paper together, well, necessarily, but these are goods that folks buy out of necessity, regardless of economic conditions, and so that's where it's considered to be defensive. So food, beverages, health and beauty aids, tobacco, certain household items, all that stuff. Those are consumer staples. And they generate steady cash flow, predictable earnings during strong and weak economies. So kind of core holdings, if you will. Uh, Utilities in water, gas, and electric are all examples of defensive stocks because folks use them all the time. And they also get a benefit from a slower economic environment because interest rates tend to be lower, although now with them rising, that could have a negative effect on certainly uh, utility, uh, electric utilities prices. The shares of major pharmaceutical firms, uh, medical device makers, they're also considered defensive stocks. and. 
because there's always going to be sick people, right? In need of care. And so increased comp competition from new drugs and uncertainty surrounding regulations. Creepy. I don't know if that would ever go away. But anyway, uh, they're not as defensive, perhaps, as they once were. Now, third quarter this year, which is after this one, we're expecting two more hikes of the by the Fed of 50 basis points. That'll be in July, September. And then fourth quarter, when the perhaps you've heard the elections are coming, uh, we think the Fed goes through two more 25 uh, basis point increases. Those are one quarter of 1%. So that would make the Fed funds rate about 2.5-2.75, which would be in line with the Fed's estimate for inflation by the end of the year. Now, we'll see. But what will the hikes do to the economy? Well, right now the economy is in solid growth mode, as I hope uh, you gathered from those economic reports I shared with you at the top of the program. And it can, the economy can definitely handle higher rates for at least a few quarters. And if the central bank, the Fed, can avoid uh, the economy going into a two-quarter downturn, see, a recession is where you have the GDP down two quarters in a row. So if the Fed can avoid doing that, as they've done it for more than 10 years the last decade, well, we should see the yield curve start sloping upward again. So, in summary, can the Fed bring down inflation on their own? No, I don't think so. They certainly can help bring in demand side. They do that with the higher interest rate, but it's not going to unload container ships. Not going to reopen production capacity around the world. It's not going to hire the long-haul truckers we need to get things across the country. You know, uh, Daniel Kahneman, he wrote, he, he's the, uh, I guess, I think of him as the father of behavioral financial investing. He, he wrote a book in, called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in it he says, investors are reacting to news more quickly and impulsively than ever. Oh, yes, they are. Not you folks listening, of course, but those other guys. You know, this is a result of the fast, instinctive, and emotional side of investors' brains gaining strength over the slower, deliberate, and logical side, unquote. The result is more, inf uh, more reactionary investor behavior, a sell-first, ask-questions-later mentality, which, of course, lends itself to a more volatile stock market. So when people are relying more heavily on the emotional side of their brains, their predictive ability goes in the tank. And so in spite of this fact, people nonetheless are making bolder proclamations and projections than ever. You know, here's a for instance. You know, like in uh, when the bug was going around, it was going to cause a Great Depression. The stock market would go right in the uh, drain. And all we would be able to do going forward was give ourselves elbow bumps, and that would be the extent of it. Well, cooler heads have prevailed. So the fact is that the world's always facing challenges and tragedies. You know, the downside about our Internet is that we know a lot more stuff that's going on than we ever did before, and so it's all of a sudden it's a big deal when we didn't even know about it previously. In any case, the trouble is that when people make forecasts based on snap judgments in the midst of extreme events, they forget for some reason, that society is definitely incentivized to solve these problems. So, what's the essence of successful long-term stock investing? Well, Charles Dow, as in Dow Jones, uh, said, and I'm quoting, 
the outsider who will wisely study values and market conditions and then exercise patience enough for six people will likely be able to make money in stocks, unquote. So self-control seems to be kind of a good idea. Um, and, you know, the, the fact is, is that what's the essence of successful long-term investing? As, again, rationality under uncertainty. You know, we, the, you can be sure. My phrase is the certainty of uncertainty. You can be absolutely sure that you have no idea what's going to happen in the markets. That's why you spread yourself around with uh, asset allocation and diversification and stay with high quality. What does that even mean? No. To me, it means basing your investment policy on your financial strategy, not uh, changing it according to a view of the economy of the markets, because that's where rationality goes right out the window. You know, nothing's changed. We just moved on to a different set of unknowables. You know, uh, those whose assets, uh, those assets whose short to intermediate terms up and downs can't be ex anticipated, much less timed, we're talking about the stocks. Now, today's crisis invariably becomes yesterday's news. Oh, really? <laughs> you don't think so, huh? Okay. Not only will you not be worried about this stuff 10 years from now, you probably won't even remember it. Here's, what, here's a pop quiz. In 2011, over six months, the market was down 20% because Greece was going out of business. We are going to have a government shutdown, and we de and S&P had the nerve to downgrade the debt of the U.S. Treasury. Yeah, right? You remember that? I only do because I do this, and you're forgiven if you don't, because it became uh, rear-view rear mirror stuff in a big hurry. It all comes down to acting versus reacting. Keep your head down. Continue to fund your retirement plan. Don't stop just because the market is down. Remember, you can buy more when it's cheaper. It's all about history, not headlines. This is a great time to be a, a stock investor for the long haul, even if at this moment we can't see our, feel like you can't see your hand in front of your face. But, you know, uh, and in the last few comments, Morningstar says, despite the stronger performance of value stocks over the past year, most are not in overvalued territory. Uh, they believe the defensive sectors have badly lagged the market because of the Federal Reserve. And uh, by lowering interest rates, the Fed removed valuation risk. We know that. But in November, that all changed. And since then, the defensive issues have started leading the market. And that's likely to continue for another several months. <laughs> 